good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I do know that Pastor Yuri read this about three weeks ago, but hey, important things have to be repeated many times, so here we are. <laughs> Uh, in your pew Bibles, it's at page 1114. Again, at your pew Bibles, it's on page 1114, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to read it at, from the end of chapter 12. Love. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Come, let us pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this beautiful day and for uh, encouraging us, everyone, to be here and listen to your word, Lord. Lord, I just pray for Pastor Mark as he uh, comes in bearing your word. And I just pray that you speak through him and help us in the audience uh, to open our hearts and accept what is being said and apply it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Ashish. Looking ahead, in faith, hope, and love. In one of the more surprising developments of music in the 80s, the rock group Foreigner wrote a very popular love ballad entitled, I Wanna Know Love. And in it, the lead singer yearned, wailed, begged to be shown love. I wanna, want you to show me love. And I think that we can say over the last number of weeks that we have seen in the text of scripture, Jesus himself showing us what love is. Love is him giving himself up 
for the sins of the whole world and bringing us to faith and justifying us before God, making us right with him through his resurrection. This morning, I'd like to conclude that series uh, with this message entitled The Singularity of the Christian Faith, Life, and Ministry. One verse, though Atish just read 13, 14 actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. During his teaching ministry, Jesus promised us, if we can imagine it, if we can accept it, if we can become it, he promised us that two transcendent realities, we might even call them characteristics or qualities or distinguishing features of the Christian faith, life, and ministry will, one, keep us together, two, give a good testimony for and of Christ to the world, and three, draw lost, needy, worldly people to God in Christ Jesus. I say again, Jesus promised us that just two transcendent and unfailing realities, if they are present in our faith, lives, and ministries, will keep us together, have a good testimony for and of Christ to the world, and draw lost people, needy people, worldly people to God in Christ Jesus. We might even say that the one transcendent reality is a direct consequence of the other, but they are distinctive enough, I think, that we'll stick with two. The first, of course, is love. Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, familiar verses, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If there is any one impediment that I've heard over and over and over again from folks who are not in church, some of them Christians, some of them not, it'd have to be the lack of love in the Christians, so-called, in the churches, so-called, that they've been a part of in their past. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'll bet you that some of us here today had significant impediments placed in our forward movement by people in the church. I have. It is not unusual, sadly. Now, to be fair, I've sometimes gotten the sense that some have used some slight or other difficulty as an excuse, perhaps absolving themselves of responsibility to grow through conflict, to give and receive grace, and to be part of the solutions rather than the problem, especially if they're Christians. But if Jesus himself said, all people, all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another, and he did say that, that we can agree that turning people off 
pushing people away, or leaving people cold where they sit would be the opposite effects of love. Before we move into the second transcendent reality, characteristic or distinguishing feature of Jesus' promise to us, let's just note that it's our love for each other, those of us already in God's household, that will get the attention and the interest of outsiders, those still entangled and still invested in the world and who need God just as desperately as we do. In other words, worldly people don't need for us, the church, to become more worldly to get their attention, more worldly to garner their interest, more worldly even to reach them for Christ, at least not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, what they most need is for us to love one another as he has loved us and then trust that the Holy Spirit will be active and effective in us and among us and around us and draw them to himself. Seeing that our love for one another transcends the natural bounds of flesh and blood, that it is literally otherworldly, spiritual even, and one by one they'll take notice and be drawn to and into the godly love that he has for them in Christ Jesus because we are demonstrating that he's had such love for us and us for each other. Now let's hold on to that thought uh, for later on in our message because when we conclude it'll become important to close the circle. But for now, let's move on to the second transcendent reality that Jesus promises will make those still in the world take notice and consider the biblical truth that God in Christ Jesus loves them too. A bit later in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, beginning in verse 18, as he was on his way to the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father for all of his disciples, including us. Quote, as you, speaking to the Father, sent me, Jesus Christ, into the world, so I have sent them, speaking of Jesus' disciples, into the world. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. That they, that, that, that really, literally, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Wow. The glory that, I have, that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I think Jesus is teaching us here by way of his earnest prayer to his Father and our Father 
that there is a stark, striking, and substantial difference between God's ways and our ways. Specifically, in relating properly and effectively with the world and those in the world. We can gather and grow a crowd using natural and material methodologies that appeal to worldly people. We can do that every single week. We can even call it church, but it will not be a true church, a local expression of the church of Jesus Christ because he did not grow it and he is not here. I'll also share with you the second reason I hear people no longer are in church regularly, and that is conflict, pettiness, and just general disunity. Why would they want to be part of that? But we are talking about, and Jesus is talking about, I believe, the eternal difference the presence and power of the Holy Spirit makes. He is the very presence and power of Jesus Christ in, among, and through his very own people, the church, and he is the Lord. And while the presence of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit can be simulated through emotional stimulation, I might even say manipulation, and the power of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit can be simulated by employing natural, material, worldly gathering and growth methodologies, neither his presence nor his power can ever be reproduced where he is not already at work. The proof of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in us, among us, and through us is the very character of Jesus Christ being formed in us as individuals and manifested among and through us together as the collected people of God known as the church. Are we more like Jesus than when we first came? Or are we more like the leaders on the platforms or of the small groups? I'm not here to point fingers, but we're seeing the breakup of megachurches and the fall of megachurch leaders all over the world, wherever megachurches have arisen. Clearly, though, they've grown exponentially for a time something vital has been missing. This is why I'm realizing more and more the value of the smaller church, not only because we can know and be known more fully, which that certainly is true, but there's also greater accountability and also a greater motivation to do well and right and that which is good and true. And the biblical Christian difference is the transforming character of the living Christ in, among, and through us to the point we love each other as Jesus has loved us and we are one as God the Father and God the Son are one and the world takes note and is drawn in too. That's the process that Jesus gives us. The question that most Christians so-called and churches so-called that they form must answer especially over the last 40 years, right up until today, is this. Will they, or, or will we, trust the Lord Jesus to do precisely what he has promised his disciples that he would do? Namely, to build his church such that the very gates of hell will not prevail against it.
That's what he says. Check it out. John chapter 16. Two related biblical questions might be, will we trust the Holy Spirit to form God's word in us such that the very character of Jesus Christ is manifested in, among, and through us? And having Jesus' character formed in, among, and through us, will we trust that the love of God in Christ Jesus is sufficient to work in us in such a way that the world knows that we are, we are his disciples and that God loves them as he has loved us? Would that be worth walking together in purposeful unity and love together? Now let's briefly review the central truth of our message for this morning. You have it there in the upper left-hand corner of your bulletin on the inside. On the inside. Here it is. The singularity of the Christian faith, life, and ministry is the love of God in Christ Jesus for all and in everything, and it's the measure of everything we do and everything we are in this life and on this earth in our place and time. The singularity of the Christian faith, life, and ministry is the love of God in Christ Jesus for all and in everything. And it's the measure of everything we do and everything we are in this life and on this earth in our place and time. Now, you all know that I'm a wannabe theoretical physicist, but I can't do the math. So that kind of excludes me. So I'm relegated to the sidelines to pick up what I can, like a water boy at a football game, I guess, on the sidelines, which brings us to the term singularity. It's not only a physics term in regular usage. Singularity means, quote now, the state, fact, quality, or condition of being singular. Okay, <laughs> that's elucidating. There's only one of whatever is in view, whether in number or type or substance or identity. For example, humanity is a singularity meaning that all human beings are like each other in essential ways and unlike any other species of creature on the earth. Humanity is a singularity. But it's the physics term that I have in mind for our central truth. Hence, singularity in physics or mathematics means, quoting here now, a point at which a function takes an infinite value. A point at which a function takes an infinite value, especially in space-time, when matter is infinitely dense, as at the center of a black hole, end quote. Friends, the point at which the biblical Christian faith, life, and ministry take on an infinite value is in the very person of God in Christ Jesus especially in that moment that he gave himself up at the cross. Father, I commend to you my spirit. It is finished. And the biblical Christian faith, life, and ministry become infinitely dense, that is, immovable, irrefutable, irresistible, unavoidable, and perfectly distinct from all else in God's manifested love in Christ Jesus. Indeed, the singularity of the Christian faith, life, and ministry is the love of God in Christ Jesus for all and in everything. 
It's the one distinguishing feature of the Christian faith, life, and ministry, and it's the measure of everything we do and everything we are in this life and on this earth in our place and time. The singularity of the Christian faith, life, and ministry is the love of God in Christ Jesus. Mahatma Gandhi was the great Hindu-Indian social justice warrior. He was born in 1869 and he was assassinated in 1948. Interesting, isn't it, that with very little doubt, the most committed man to peace in the world since Christ was also assassinated and Martin Luther King Jr. after him. Well, Gandhi's life and remarkably effective activity spanned the late 19th and first half of the 20th century, and he is considered by many the father of modern India. Early in his studies, Gandhi genuinely explored the great religions. But when he looked at Christianity, he found colonialism, racism, and segregation, economic disparities, and other troubling aspects of Western culture practiced by Christians and endorsed by the church. So he turned away and continued looking, finally fixing his soul back on Hinduism. Gandhi was a well-known, ardent critic of Christianity, not of Christ, but of Christianity and of Christians. He famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. At another time he said, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. And finally, he criticized specifically American Christianity for, quoting here now, putting Jesus up for sale, seeking wealth and power above all else, end quote. Now, whether Gandhi's or others' criticisms of Christians, churches, and Christianity in general are fair, well, that's for another discussion on another occasion. We certainly hope not in all cases, but they do, however, highlight observations that we do well to pay attention to. We all know there's a wide gap between the character and behavior of Jesus Christ and, well, us. Even as we confess that his very presence and his unlimited power reside within and among us by his spirit, we still know and we still proclaim that we are not Jesus Christ, but only dim representations of him in the world. We are not much like our Christ, it's true. But if we can allow him, by way of his, of his word and his spirit, to transform us on a daily basis, one week to the next, one Sunday to the next, we can say, one month to the next, and one year to the next, then we have the opportunity to represent him better, more effectively, more fruitfully, and together. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13 says, So now, faith, hope, and love abide these three. That's what our text has been telling us for four weeks now. I take now to mean from the moment Paul wrote this word through to the moment we read this word, and then every moment thereafter that we live in these bodies on this earth in our place and time. So now, 
what? So now, meaning now, faith, hope, and love abide in this life on this earth is the point, I believe. And not only that, but also in this ministry, in this church, in this place, and in this time. Remember, 1 Corinthians was written to a local congregation of Christians in the city of Corinth. Also to us, we receive it by faith, or we shouldn't pay attention to it. It is written to them, and it is written to us in our time and place by the Holy Spirit, which we receive by faith. But obviously, though all three have something in common, one is not like the others. Faith, hope, and love. All three are key fundamentals in the biblical Christian faith, life, and ministry. We can't do without any of them in any aspect of the Christian experience. And I suspect that this is the root cause of what Gandhi was getting at. Not that he recognized it as such, but the effects of the Holy Spirit's absence and the mere Christian religion that resulted from the Holy Spirit's absence in the practice so-called of the Christian faith all too easily reduces down to a poor, fleshly, cultural, worldly testimony, even a false testimony to Christ. All over the world and throughout Christian history, many evils have been justified, sanctioned, and endorsed by Christians and churches, so-called, that lacked both the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The character of Christ was nowhere to be found. Too many Christians and churches, so-called, have tried to mimic the Christian life and the practice of the Christian faith and ministry apart from the Holy Spirit. That is, they, or perhaps even we, try to be something, Christians and churches, without the source of spiritual life and these three vital aspects of the Christian experience, true faith, true hope, and true love, all three of which come only from the Holy Spirit, his presence, and his power. I know in my own life and in the practice of my own Christian faith and ministry, this is what's lacking when I'm ineffectual and unfruitful. I need not only the resident presence of the Holy Spirit that I know by doctrine and by faith, but also the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that I know relationally and also by faith. And so do we all. Each of these, faith, hope, and love, is made real. The biblical word is manifested. Faith, hope, and love are manifested in and by the Holy Spirit who is in us and among us, We cannot manufacture them because we cannot manufacture him. He is the true essential. The best definition I know of faith in the Bible is found in Hebrews 11 where it says, now faith is the assurance or the the substance, the, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence or, 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 or perhaps even the proof of things not seen. Now, Let's break that down for just a second. Now, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for. So I'm hoping for something 
to the extent that it is there present before me in substance. Here it is. It is a pulpit. It is substantial. And the assurance that I have in faith is as substantial as that. How is your faith? The conviction, the evidence, the proof of things not yet seen. In practical application, faith means that we move forward in the same direction with assurance and conviction together of what God has promised us through his word and by his Holy Spirit, both of whom are always in agreement with each other and they are also in us and among us. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. Now the best definition of hope that I know of in the Bible comes from Romans chapter eight. It's not so much a definition as kind of a description of what hope is and isn't. From verse 23 of Romans chapter eight, we read, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. So once again, the Holy Spirit agrees with himself that faith, hope, and love come from the Holy Spirit. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not, rather, now hope that is seen is not hope. So if, if it's here in front of me, if I can feel it, touch it, taste it, whatever, it's no longer hope, it's here, it's realized, it's fulfilled. That's not hope, that is experience. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a little less direct, I'll admit, but we can find a definition of hope in there if we work at it just a bit. First, hope, true hope, living hope is of, from, and through the Holy Spirit. Clearly, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Secondly, we long for the object of our hope. We groan inwardly for it, and we wait for it as long as it takes to become a reality. For example, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Thirdly, we are saved in and because of this hope. This is confusing sometimes, because if I'm saved, why do I still sin? That's a question all of us, any of us who are true Christians, ask all the time. And the answer is God's grace is sufficient for you. Continue to believe his word. That's faith leading to hope of deliverance from sin one day. Fourthly, hope is that which is not yet seen. And we wait eagerly and with with patience for the object of our hope, namely Jesus Christ himself. And then there's love. Faith, hope, and love. Biblical love. Christian love. Love that comes only from, by, and through the Holy Spirit. Godly love. The love of God in a person, Jesus Christ himself. 
the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is a self-sacrificial love, an infinite love, an eternal love, a love of singularity. Indeed, love is the singularity of the Christian faith, life, and ministry. It is the love of God in Christ Jesus for all and in everything, and it is the measure of everything we do and everything we are in this life and on this earth, in our place and time. There is no other. Why? Because the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, is love. Amen and amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. God, our Father, once again, gathered by the Spirit of Christ in the name of Christ, we thank you for your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, we come across these aspects of infinite value and infinite density, all orbiting around a single point, and that point is the love of God in Christ Jesus. First of all, Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your love for the world. Thank you for your love, your exemplary love for each other, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make us one, Lord, as Jesus has promised us, that if we are one as you are one in the Godhead, that the world will take notice. And the world will be drawn in. Not everyone, of course, but those you're calling to yourself, those that you are bringing to faith, those you are entrusting to us. So, Lord, we continue to ask for you to continue your work in us. As individuals, in families, as couples, as your church even Bethesda Church. We thank you for your ongoing faithfulness to us. We pray that we will always, always be a place where faith, hope, and love abound. And we ever acknowledge that the love of God in Christ Jesus is the greatest of them all. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted us to go out today with the words by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter, second, second letter, first 11 verses. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for these encouraging words. They seem impossible to us, I'm sure they do to me, but we don't do this on our own. We do it by the power of your Holy Spirit that you have promised is present within every single one of your children. And we do it together because the Christian life is not designed to be lived alone, but together in community with each other, helping and strengthening and guiding and correcting and loving and comforting. Thank you, Lord, for putting us in such a community here at Bethesda, and may we increase in all of these ways and more. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.